We are taking a look at our third look at the catechism, and we're going to be looking at beginning at Lord's Day number four, and unless I talk too much, we'll get into Lord's Day number five, because I do not want to leave you hopeless after we have finished this. For instance, the... um, the main passage that we're going to take a look at is from Romans 7, 21 to 25, which I know you all can read because the print's so big. I'm still working on this. I'm technically challenged. I came up in that generation where the hibiscus was still our way of doing math. And some of you have no idea what I just talked about, right? <laughs> Abacus. No, no, no. Western Pennsylvania. Hibiscus. <laughs> when you come from Western Pennsylvania, you slaughter words. That's, that's a technical part. Romans 7, beginning in 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And I'm going to continue on into the 8th chapter There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In a sense, this summarizes what we're going to take a look at today in Lord's Day 4 and then Lord's Day 5. I put those two together because if I stopped at the end of Lord's Day 4, you guys would be absolutely depressed. So we want to leave you because it's Resurrection Day on a happier note. So that when John preaches, you're going, yes, yes, instead of, oh, man. Because Lord's Day 4 deals with our sinfulness, the very essence of our original nature. We are, uh, we're we're taking a look at this because this is the progress of the catechism. Just a little bit of a review. Day one, we got to see the overall view. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And again, that word comfort means what's your only certainty? What's your only probability of help? What is your only strength in all of life, life and death, the two of them put together, all all of who you are? And of course, the answer is a triune God, Jesus, who is your Savior, the Father who is your provider, the Spirit who is a guarantee of what the Father has provided 
and the Son has given. That's the only certainty that you can have in all of life. Not that you can't have other certainties, but the only certainty that will stand the test of time. In fact, that will see you through all of life and all of death. And then the second question deals with, well, what do you need to know? You need to know your misery, you need to know redemption, and you need to know how to serve. Or, as some have put it, you need to know your guilt, you need to know grace, you need to know gratitude. You need to know sin, you need to know salvation, you need to know service. Those three categories. So last week we took a look at Lord's Day 2 and 3, where we saw our need as uh, as the catechism said, that we are a humanity that was perf- created perfect in the image of God, that we are people who have been given the communicable attributes of God, that's the image, and then we are created with the likeness of God, that is, we are given the character of God that we would be able to do. Our problem, and this is our misery, is that we have fallen. Not only we individually, but also we have fallen because of our federal head. That is, first human being, Adam. And you, you may look at that and say, that's not fair. I didn't have a choice of it. In which case you're showing yourself to be an excellent American. If I can't choose it, it's not fair. Well, you're not that good of an American because we live under federal law. We all don't go to the voting booth for every issue that comes before this country and vote on it. We elect individuals who represent us either well or poor, and they make the laws. And then we are left underneath those laws. That's what it means to be a federal government. Adam was our federal head. He represented all of us. And when he fell, we fell with him. Just as when Congress votes a horrible law, of which I will not even begin to think about which one it is, we all are underneath it. We don't have a choice. Now, in our country, we get to repeal laws or things like that. Not so with Adam. And therefore, all of us are in this misery. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We have a deceitful heart. We are desperately wicked. And again, if you're a good American, you say, no, no, Americans are good people. And remember, good is always a relative term. My dog is good, but not as good as my kids. And not in the same way as our children. God is good, but not in the same way that you and I may be good. Totally different category. And therefore, we are not good. We call it total depravity. That is, every area of our life has been twisted, turned, corrupted by our sin, by Adam's sin, and also by our own sin. I mean, again, I don't know how many times I've taught on that or when I was studying it in seminary, and I had friends, and even myself, we, we spent time struggling with that. What? Every area is twisted? 
And then all you have to do is think about it for a while and you realize, yeah, if you really look at yourself, if you do a deep time of inquiry, you'll see that your thinking, the core of who you are, your actions, everything has been twisted, corrupted, bent by sin. We are not good people. That's part of our misery. Today we're going to continue with the misery and then slide over into our redemption. Because again, I say I don't want to leave you hopeless. So let's get on with it. He says, yeah, thank you. Anytime. Question nine. Page 25 in your book. Does not God then do injustice to man by requiring of him in his law that which he cannot perform? You know what this question sounds like? It sounds like a little kid. It sounds like a kid with a, with a sibling. And two pieces of pie are put before them. One is a little bit bigger than the other one. And the one that gets a little piece of pie goes, That's not fair! I want the big one! That's what the question is asking. Is it fair for God to require of us in his law what we cannot perform? Or is it an injustice for God to demand it? And again, we look back to being the federal head. No. For God so made man that he could perform it, but man through the instigation of the devil by willful disobedience deprived himself and all his descendants of those divine gifts. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. He, we, he made us, Adam, to be able to do it. He fell. We fell. And it says, not only by the instigation of, instigation of the devil, but by willful disobedience deprived himself and us. And if you notice in your own life, and again, this always points back to us individually, that's the same two issues that we all deal with. The instigation of the devil we may not understand it, but the devil creates a cultural system that denies that we are sinful or denies that we are a people that are corrupt. And therefore, we merely go on our way. And when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do, we go, that's not fair. It's unjust. Now, he made us so we could. And second of all, there's a willful disobedience. You ever notice the human beings love to do what they're told not to do? Person paints a park bench, puts on their wet paint, do not touch. You know what happens? Ooh, they want to do it. Signs and things that you are told and you almost automatically say, I want to do that. that. That looks like fun. You see how corrupt the nature is? It's ingrained within us. That's our problem. 
And it's not unjust for God who created Adam perfect and us perfect in him, but he fell and gave to us that same nature to be able to say to us, I told you, but your propensity is to do what I tell you not to do. That's the powerlessness of the law. Back to that Romans passage I read. Whether or not Paul is talking about himself before Christ or after Christ, on this case, is irrelevant. Because there's debate one way or the other. I think in Romans 7, he's talking about his nature after Christ. After he came to Christ. But what does he say? The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. Goes for a non-Christian. They're told, do not lie. And then they get caught at something. And you know what's the first thing they do? Oh, I'm sorry. I really shouldn't have done that. No. First thing that they do is they lie to get out of it. And once they've made a lie, they have to make a second lie to, care, to, to confirm the first lie, and then the third lie, and the fourth lie. And uh, one of my favorite TV detectives, Columbo, would trip them up because of a lie they had to tell in order to get not, to think that they would not be prosecuted for a crime. Same way with us. That is our problem. And it's not unjust. He made us to be able to obey. And we have not. So, you have the next question, which is number 10. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? It's like a phrase I've heard from people uh, say something like this. Well, this is the process. I sin, God forgives. It's a great life. I can sin all that I want and God will forgive me all that I have sinned. Like it's automatic. Have you ever heard that? I'm the only one who, a couple of you have. If you, if you really th think about it. And if you talk with people who are not Christians, that's what they'll say. Why, God's in the business of forgiving me. And I think that's a nice process. But the answer says, look at the disposition of God towards sin. Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our inborn as well as our actual sins and will punish them in just judgment in time and eternity as he has declared. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do, to do them. I underline that phrase, terribly displeased. And I think that's a weak understanding of God. I mean, I'm terribly displeased at some drivers. <laughs> but God is terribly displeased. And when God is terribly displeased, has a full weight of his wrath, anger, and power behind it. He's not just saying... Oh, good little boy, you'll do better next time. He says, I hate you. Now, don't take it personally. I hate you. Esau, I hated. Jacob, I loved. I hate what you do. 
And that's the kind of hatred that boils into his wrath. Good news for Sunday morning, right? Isn't that exciting? Aren't you just all, yep, let's go for it. He's terribly displeased with our inborn, that is our nature from birth. I was conceived in sin, uh, David would say, not that his mother did anything wrong, but he just understands. From the moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. And then he goes on, as well as our actual sins, the things that we do out of that basic nature. And it will punish them in just judgment. We look and we like a just judgment in all cases that come before the court. And we get them partially. We know O.J. was guilty. Everything fit that he was guilty. And what? He got to walk. Well, so far. <laughs> just judgment. God looks at us and he says, I will take care of you because you're a sinner. Not care in a sense I'll comfort and I will watch over you. When I come to judge you, you will know that it is just and you know that I am justified in pouring my wrath out upon you. So you have a passage like the Deuteronomy 27, 26 that is quoted in the, question, in the answer. Or Galatians 3.10, which is a New Testament interpretation. For as many as are the works of the law under this, are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Or Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, godly, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of sin who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice that word, who suppress it. That is, they know it's true, but they push it down and say it's as if it isn't true. All the time, inwardly, they know, yeah, yeah, God is perfectly just and right to condemn me, to send me to an eternal punishment for who I am and for what I have done. Oh, another great thing for Sunday morning, especially Resurrection Day, right? That's who we are. We find it repugnant as well, if we think about it. A person who's a mass killer, who's let off free, guilty go unpunished, a little sin and we try to excuse it. Let me show you some sinful mathematics. Suppose you sin one time per minute. You tell a lie, you think, or you do something wrong. That will lead to 60 times in an hour, which will lead to 1,440 in a day, which then leads 
to 535,800 in a year, which then leads to over 33 million in a 70-year lifespan. And that's only one thing. That's only one action. Add to that your attitude. When you got up this morning, I don't want to get up. It's, oh, the bed feels so good. Do I have to get up this morning? The attitudes we have, they're consistent. How are you going to pay back 33 million if that's a conservative minimum? And how can God not judge it? And how can he not give you eternal condemnation if these are not dealt with? God is holy. He is absolutely separated from us, but he is pure. And impurity cannot live in his presence. He has to deal with it. It's like yesterday, I cleaned my car. It was a nice day outside. And I'm looking around and I'm making sure that I got every little piece of dirt, every little crumb, every little old piece of french fries. Because I wanted a clean car. And then I get it in, then I get into it this morning and I realize there's a piece I missed and there's a piece I missed. And I'm not holy. Now, if I was a holy car cleaner, there would be nothing in that car. That's exactly how God is. He's holy. Not one sin can dwell in his presence. It says a lot about how we think about God. If we say, I can freely sin and he will freely forgive, it says he doesn't care about his holiness. He doesn't care about his purity. He doesn't care about who he is which is exactly the opposite of, of God. God cares extremely, infinitely about who he is and how his creation relates to him. And an infinite caring and concern says that he knows everything and he will take care of everything one way or the other. See, the problem with the law is it cannot change our heart from doing this. It simply tells us that this is who we are. And the law also tells us this is who God is. He's holy. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Which means not only a physical idol but an idol in your head. And if we're thinking that God will just forgive us our sins, we've made an idol of God in our head, in our thoughts. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So we don't say God, we say gosh, oh gee. Which is simply skirting what's really going on in our heart and what's really going on in us. Aren't you feeling better this morning? Actually, my goal today is to drive you so far down that you're like a little puddle underneath 
the pew. It's working? Okay. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I'll pay you later for that comment. <laughs> and the thing is, because we know that there is a just judgment, we know that there's a horrible future that awaits us all. And it haunts us. In your moments of most sober moments, not just simply sober from not drinking, but in your moments of thinking about yourself, the, the information that you have suppressed pops its head back up like a cork. And you realize, I am in deep trouble. I am in deep, deep trouble. And therefore, you try to suppress it again. For instance, people will say that the idea of eternal judgment is simply a horrible idea from primitive people is not worthy of modern sensibilities. Well, people haven't changed over the centuries. There's nothing new under the sun. We are all the same. We're the same as the uh, third century BC people in the sense of who we are. They just recognized it and said it and told people that. The other idea is it's not just a primitive people. It's taught in the authoritative word of God. It's also taught by Jesus. And therefore we have people who say, well, I like what Jesus said here. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who mourn. But when he gets over to Matthew 25, and he says, depart from me and go into eternal punishment. He says, oh, Obviously, that's just those primitive people bringing up their very bad theology. See, you see how easily we try to escape from that? Or, God is supreme love. And a God who has that supreme love, that's his, that is his characteristic above all characteristics. How could he ever send anybody into eternal judgment. And they forget one of the characteristics of God that we looked at on Wednesday nights with the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer. That's another cheap advertisement to be there. Second and fourth Wednesday, we looked at the aseity of God. That is his simplicity. His oneness where you cannot separate one characteristic from another, but they all flow together. So the same God who is supreme love is also supreme holiness. And His holiness must be satisfied. There, that, that argument gets taken out. Or the one that's really prevalent is God loves all people and therefore he rescues all people no matter what. Universalism is what we call it. And they forget, again, the holiness of God. They forget that there are standards. They forget that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Quote from Jesus. They forget who God is. So, that's question 10. Question 11. But is not God also merciful? 
God is indeed merciful, but he is likewise just. His justice, therefore, requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, both of body and soul. Very similar to what I talked about. What about his mercy? Doesn't that overcome? No. It's part of the whole. And the whole fits together very, very well. Justice demands sin be punished. We know that. It's part of our own nature. And God will punish them in everlasting judgment. Everlasting punishment. Catch this. Of body and soul. Why? Because we sin in soul and body. Our very nature, with our heart, with our mind, with our wills, but also it moves out through our bodies. Think about every of one of the commandments. And you realize when they're broken, they're broken not only internally, but they're broken outwardly. You shall not lie. And you lie with your mouth to another person. You shall not steal. And with your hand, you take something from somebody else. You shall not commit adultery. Well, Jesus said it's adultery of the mind, right? To lust. But adultery is also physical. The ultimate of adultery is to be physical. You shall not covet. Well, that's partly mine. But to covet is to say, I really want that Lamborghini that my neighbor has. We live in a very rich neighborhood. No, no, I don't. I really want that Lamborghini, and I'm willing to do anything I can to have that Lamborghini. And sometimes people do it. That's our problem. And it's an everlasting judgment. Again, that's one of the things that led to the, to the uh, Reformation is a sense of not everlasting judgment. It's something that's prevalent in our day and age. There are those theologians today who are saying, well, when a human being dies without Christ, they disappear. There is no judgment after death. They're just gone. God takes them out. No punishment. Or the judgment is only up until Christ comes back. And when he comes back, everyone's declared not guilty and they're entered into the kingdom of God. So yes, it may be horrible, but it's only horrible for a short time. And then it's gone. Well, the catechism and the scriptures tell you it's eternal. It's everlasting. Not eternal. It's everlasting. Psalm 5, 6. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. They shall, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And again with the law, it's not simply the physical. It is the attitude. The Lord abhors. Think about that word. Abhors the bloodthirsty. Or Revelation, you, know, you, you take a look at those verses and you say, well, those are all Old Testament. Last one, Revelation 14, 11. 
and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. That is what we take a look at. That's what our, that is what our future is without Christ. Not a happy perspective. And if I were really mean, and I were a hell and damnation pastor and preacher, I'd stop right there and let you cringe for the next week. However, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, and I have land in South Florida, I'll sell you too. <laughs> I won't leave you there. In fact, the catechism doesn't leave you there. I would, would remind you that when they divided the catechism into Lord's days, it's somewhat of a false division as far as the original catechism because it just went from one question to the next. It was an easy way to have 52 Lord's Day where you could preach on this and leave your people dangling after Lord's Day 4. I'm going to go to Lord's Day 5. And Lord's Day 5 begins with question 12. Since then, by the righteous, the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How may we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? And here's that hope. God wills that his justice be satisfied. Exodus 20, 25. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the fourth, third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the weekend. Back to the question, therefore, or the answer, therefore, we must make full satisfaction to that justice, either by ourselves or by another. There's only two choices in front of us. Either I've got to deal with it or somebody else has to deal with it. But his justice must be satisfied. So you get to number 13. Can we our, ourselves make this satisfaction? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our guilt. Okay, how about us being able to satisfy? And the answer is no way. Since we add to the injury every day and every moment. Psalm 130, verse 3, or verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And again, it's either being pitted in a pit and a pit where the, you are sunk up to your, to your uh, shoulders in the muck. And it's like quicksand because every movement you make just helps you to go slower and slower down until the muck will eventually cover you and you're dying. That's Jeremiah, the, what happened to the prophet. If this is only one per minute and we can do 60 per minute, notice what that number would be. Astronomical. Way beyond what we could ever do in good works. Because all of our good works are tainted by sin. And so we simply add on by what we try to do in and of ourselves. 
So we are not the people who can do it. We live in the quicksand of our own moral inability. So now you get to question 14. Can any mere creature make satisfaction for us? And in that he's talking about, and they're, they're talking about, especially out of the Old Testament, one of the pagan rites, where they would take their firstborn son and throw him into a hot oven as a sacrifice to their pagan gods and say, well, now he's pleased. He's appeased by my sacrifice of my son or by animals like the Old Testament. You notice bulls, rams, goats, sheep, doves, always were that which was sacrificed for the atonement of sin. But he, here the confession is saying not even that was enough. Why? Well, for first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man committed. There is an inequilibrium between we who are humans and animals. I know your dog is a great, good dog, the smartest dog in the world, right? But it's not moral. He doesn't think, or she doesn't think. She responds to what you have trained her to do, especially if you give to them a treat. But they do not come up with things on their own. If they were good, they wouldn't get you up at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> so, they are not equivalent to who we are. But also, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. Animals are not adequate, not only because they are not like us, they are not in the same class as we are, although some in our day and age would love to think that animals are in the same class as we are, and they cannot take the everlasting punishment. They're not adequate. Animals could only cover for a while. And that's the point of the Old Testament sacrifices. That when they were being sacrificed, it was looking forward to an ultimate sacrifice. And you trusted in that sacrifice because you knew that there would become one who could take your place. Somebody help me. Because this is bothered me for the last two days. I know in the Bible somewhere, and I'm going to show my ignorance, there is a passage that says that the sacrifices of the animals were stored up for the time of Christ. See me afterwards. There is somewhere. I just couldn't find it. I leafed all through the, my Bible. And I know it's in there because I've read it. And I only read my Bible. No, no, I'm teasing about that one. But all those were simply being stored up until the true sacrifice, the real sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice would come. And then the atonement of those animals would be satisfied by the atonement of one person. And that's why no one else no other creature can take. Hebrews 
9, 7 to 10. I looked at that passage. My blinders were on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. See, the Lord wanted John to look good. <laughs> so he set that up. So. <laughs> hey, I, I declared it. It must be true. <laughs> oh. So you have this, that no creature. Finally, last question of this day. What kind of mediator and redeemer then must, be, must, must we seek? What kind of mediator? What kind of go-between? What kind of one that can stand on the side of God and the stand, side of human beings must we look at? What kind of redeemer? That's a, a biblical term which means kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is built upon this. That there, when you are in debt, when you have lost your property, one of your kinsmen can come and pay the price for your debt and for your property and restore it unto you. Kinsman redeemer. Who can, who can pay the price for your sinfulness? And the answer, one who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also true God. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We'll have a child and his name will be God is with us. It's not just a polite name. It's a name that, a title that tells us something about the son. God with us. Has to be both God and man at the same time. That is our mediator. That is our redeemer. That's the only one who can fulfill the law by living it out perfectly in his life. And he also can bear the punishment against those who have failed to bear and fulfill the law. Those two are put together. He does what the law cannot do. Back to Romans 8. For has God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And this is the graciousness of the author of this catechism. Just at the time they get you feel lower than this floor. A puddle of misery. Hopeless. Comes back with the answer. There's one. Not yourself. Not an animal. But there's one who is a God man. And this is the beauty of the message of this weekend. Is it not? We celebrate the entrance of the King of Kings into humanity at Christmas. And he comes and we celebrate his ministry and we think of the 30-some years in which he perfectly obeyed his father, never sinning, had to drive his brothers and sisters crazy, but never, ever sinning. And then at the Last Supper, he renews the covenant of the Old Testament and deepens it. That's the idea of new. 
It's a deeper covenant than what the Old Testament presented. And then you go through that day of being crushed by human beings, by the religious leaders, by the Roman leaders, by the cohorts, and finally put on the cross. And there for what I think is six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., he bore the punishment of our sins. And from about 12 to 3, the sky goes black as if God is not even looking at his son. And he pours upon his son his eternal wrath, his punishment, not for anything he did because he was sinless, but for what you and I do. And then he took his Sabbath rest. He died. It is finished. God looked at his creation. He said, it's very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. And on the seventh day, Christ rested in the tomb, tasting death for you and I. Tasting what it's like not to have life in a body. To be in a cold, dark tomb until the eighth day the new Sabbath, when he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, all that he had done in his life and his death on the cross and his resting in the tomb is now applied to, can be applied to us. And all the new life he has, the resurrection life he has, can be applied to us. And that's the joy and beauty of this morning. That's what lifts us out of this misery that we have. That there is one who is more than willing to do that for people like you and me. Now, it's not carte blanche. It's not as if everyone gets it. That's what universalism would have us to believe. But there's a qualification. You must be born again. You must repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. You must, after God, after the Spirit has recreated you, you must place your faith in Christ. Without it, you're still under sin and you're still suppressing it. With it, there's a new freedom. There's new life. There's new hope. That's the message of the catechism and of this day. And hopefully, prayerfully, that's the message of your life. He is risen. He is risen Let's pray. Father, help us. We sink in our own mire. We are touched by our own sin. We are a people who indeed are those who are left by ourselves hopeless and in despair. And yet the message of this day is that we can be lifted up out of the depths into the beauty of your presence, into the wonder of a new life that you have for us, of a resurrection life that defeats all of our enemies, and that we can be a new people. I pray for those who are here today who may not have experienced that yet, that you would send your spirit 
to help them not only understand it and be convicted of their own sin, but converted, and therefore that they can confess Christ. And I pray for we who have experienced it, we would continue to be convicted of our sin that would send you to the cross on our behalf. And that we indeed would be given the power to live for you. Help us to worship in just a few minutes. Help us to live for this day, for you and for your glory. Help us to go from here rejoicing because you have dealt with the most difficult, most prevalent and prominent problem of our life. And that is our own sinfulness. And you've done it in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name, for we ask it of you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.